0: The Jericho Network on Westwood One. The following program is presented by the Jericho Network in association with Podcast One. Podcast One presents Rock Talk Talk. with Mitch LaFond. All the rockers. All the stories. This is incredible. Now, Now, here's your host,
1: respected rock journalist, Mitch LaFond. Welcome to Rock Talk and I... And Mitch LaFonta uh, joining me on this episode. Rita Haney discusses Dime Bag Daryl's Dime Vision 2. Uh, we talk about that and, of course, a whole bunch of other stuff. On the other side, I have got Jeff Waters of Canadian band Annihilator talking about their new album, For the Demented, touring, the challenges of touring, lineup changes, and all the history of Annihilator. And we finish with a show, with an interview, I should say, that I did. Uh, A little earlier in the year, but it got sort of lost in the shuffle, and I do apologize for that. But it is Seven Dust's John Connolly talking about his band Projected and their most recent album, Ignite My Insanity. So uh, my apologies for John for having delayed that, but it is here, and so you will get to hear it. But um, before I get to this sort of lineup of heavy, heavy metal... Uh, let's let's juxtapose that with you know, the Christmas season or the holiday season is upon us and uh, there are a few albums that have come out over the years and two of my favorite bands have recently put some stuff out so you've got Cheap Trick that just released Christmas Christmas uh, it was a pledge music campaign if you haven't had a chance to check that out, do so it's on all uh, platforms now iTunes, Spotify, Apple Music the whole thing And uh, the band Thunder has released an EP called Christmas Day. They've also put out a video for the song Christmas Day. But it brings me back to exploring some of the greatest Christmas albums over the years, or at least certainly the ones that I have enjoyed or have had a small part in. And uh, my absolute favorite, which is, I know, a a taboo to talk about because I don't think the artist himself... Uh, Appreciates the album, but uh, Billy Idol, a few years ago, had a had a Christmas album called Happy Holidays. I I mean, come on. Uh, I did discuss it with Derek Sherinian in my recent Sons of Apollo um, interview, but that album, I, I don't care who played on it, whether they like it or not. It is a fun, fun album, and. It is unfortunate that it sort of has been pulled off the market. You can certainly find it on eBay and other, you know, Discogs and Music Stack and other sort of record collecting sites. Uh, and people are getting a fabulous penny for it. I mean, it is going uh, insane how much money people are asking for it. But come on, Billy Idol doing Christmas songs. I mean, really, come on. It's fun. Um, Then there is, of course, one of them that sort of started everything, or the one that everybody remembers. It is Twisted Sister, A Twisted Christmas. That was a very unexpected Christmas album. The band had not been together for many, many years. They said, let's do a reunion, let's do some shows, blah, blah, blah. They did. And then they announced, we got some new music coming. And people went, yeah, new Twisted Sister music. And then a Christmas album came out. And you know what? It's sold, and it sold very, very well. And in fact, uh, so much so that uh, at supper one day, in fact, lunch one day with Brian Vollmer, the lead singer of Helix, I was sitting down with him and I was telling him, I said, man, Twisted Sisters back and they've done this album and and, and people are really loving it and the sales are are great. And and he went, really? A Christmas album? Really? And I said, yeah, 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 Brian, a Christmas album, you you should see this. And and, and we talked about it and I showed him and... uh, And of course, Brian took the idea and ran with it and made Helix's very own A Heavy Mental Christmas. So listen, these are albums that are just fun. They they are not albums that you can discuss in great length and say, oh my God, this album is better than that album and these players and that guy. No, no, no. These are just fun albums. So while you're out there during the holiday season, the Christmas season, and you're just looking for some fun sort of rock music, I recommend, highly recommend, A Twisted Christmas by Twisted Sister, A Heavy Mental Christmas by the band Helix, Billy Idol's Happy Holidays, and if you want something fresh and new, Christmas Christmas by Cheap Trick, and Christmas Day by Thunder. Uh, By the way, Thunder have done Christmas shows every year for God knows how long, probably like 15 or 20 years, and every year they do these Christmas shows, and the money gets donated to charity and all kinds of great stuff. But they also take the time to put each CD or each show on CD, and the fans can have it. I have at home a good half dozen or or more Thunder Christmas shows, and they're just fun because they do all kinds of stuff. They cover songs from Every band, I mean, what do I have on there? I mean, they've done "Lola" by the Kings at shows. They've done Bob Seeger, They've done um, um, what's the song? Uh, "Breakdown" by Tom Petty. They've done all. So they do these Christmas shows and they do sort of a semi-acoustic, semi-electric set. And they, I'd love to see more bands do that, quite frankly. So here, here's my question that I pose to you today. First of all, uh, head over to the Twitter, at Mitch Lafon, M-I-T-C-H-L-A-F-O-N, or, of course, the Facebook page, Rock Talk with Mitch Lafon, and just tell me, what are your favorite sort of hard rock, rock Christmas albums? Uh, And let's not limit it to hard rock. You know, Billy Idol is certainly not hard rock. Neither is Cheap Trick, I would say. But so what are your favorite sort of music Christmas albums, which are the ones that just sort of put you in a good mood? And who do you think that hasn't done a Christmas album that should do a Christmas album? Oh, by the way, I just remembered um, Rob Halford. Halford uh, Three, uh, Winter Songs, was another Christmas album that was very much worth uh, checking out. And he also does a, a cover of Silent Night, which was released as a single and I think later on put on an album, if I remember correctly. But uh, would you like to see Judas Priest do a Christmas album or Iron Maiden or Kiss? I mean, uh, why limit ourselves? Who, who out there hasn't done a Christmas album? And you think just for, for fun, not a serious, serious, this is my next new album, just for fun. Who do you think would do a fun Christmas album? I vote, personally, for Kiss. You know, Paul Stanley does his Soul Station stuff. I think that Paul Stanley and the guys would put together an absolutely fun Christmas album. Heck, you know, do the album and bring in Bruce Kulik and Bob Kulik and, and a couple of the other guys. And just have, you know, a, a festive kind of Christmas album. Anyway, uh, so from Christmas album, let's get right into Metal. And we will start off with uh, Rita Haney uh, talking about Dime Vision 2, and then over to Annihilator and Projected Seven Dusts, John Conley. So without further ado, here is the one, the only Rita Haney. We are speaking with Rita Haney, and we are talking about Dime Vision Volume 2 Roll With It or Get Rolled Over. Uh, Rita, pleasure to speak with you.
2: Oh, man. Thank you guys for having me. Yeah. It's all my pleasure.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And um, let's, let's just get right into this. Of course, we've got the, the, this DVD that has 90 minutes of unreleased video, clips, songs. You've got the unreleased um, uh, demos for the Dimebag dem, uh, demos. So just talk to me about the process of sort of filtering through all the videos that you have and, and compiling it and, and making the, and putting this package together.
2: Uh, you know, it's funny, you know, we planned on doing this, uh, you know, every year and then, I don't know, you know, for some reason, time just kind of got away from all of us. Uh, you know, Bobby Tongs was out on the road with Manson and Slipknot for years and, and Vinny, you know, he was putting together Hell Yeah and has been touring since as well. And I was doing a lot of the summer festivals and fall festivals with Daryl's merch. So, um, uh, through that time, you know, we had pulled aside when we did the first volume, we had pulled aside, you know, things that we didn't use in, in that volume as well. But uh, as far as going through tapes, I mean, gosh, there's still so many tapes and and different formats that we still haven't even cataloged yet. You know, it's just uh, there's it probably goes back to, I guess, the mid 80s that, you know, we have footage from. So, you know, there's a lot of it. <laughs> And, um, but yeah, the, the 43 segments, I believe it was 43 that we pulled for this, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's a pretty magical process to be able to, you know, things that you forgot about and you get to revisit. And then of course there are things Bobby shot that I haven't seen and stuff that I've shot that he didn't get to see. So it's, it's kind of cool. You know, it's like, like he's with you. It's fresh. You know he's here with you right now, and you're seeing it for the first time. So, like I said, it's a pretty magical experience to to go through and just laugh. And you know, I mean, of course you 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 get choked up and a little sad, but you know, Daryl is just too funny to to be too sad about for very long. You know, but uh, yeah, it's a process that I, I mean, I love I love working on this stuff, and uh, and it's like I said, it's magical.
1: In terms of the footage, is there sort of a, a, a thematic tie together in, in what you want to show? Is it sort of just Dimebag, uh, you know, the funny family guy or the the funny guy at home, or is, is it here's the rock star and here's the – like so, sort of what does the footage show and, and, you know, is it sort of tied together or is it just random clips that say here's him here and here – you know, how is it sort of put together in terms of thematically?
2: Um, you know, it's, it's really not. It's like you said, it's just uh – as we come across things and, and, you know, and it it's like on every tape, you know, you've got an hour long tape, you want to use everything. So it's more of a process of going, okay, what can't we use? Because we have so much that we want to put in here, but then, you know, you're looking at two or three hour long um, movie that, you know, so, so it's really um, going through it and saying, okay, we're going to save this for next time and this for next time, but it's pretty, uh, uh, spread out, you know. It's anywhere from uh, him, you know, us wrapping presents at Christmas, or him making a mailbox for somebody as a present, to taking the guy who does our lawn to get a pedicure. You know, it's just uh, there's it's just random, and a lot of it, you know, for Dime Vision is, uh, I mean, there's a lot of elements and, and things, you know, about Daryl that we wouldn't use in a Pantera home video you know, as far as Damage Plan music or or his four-track music and, uh, and you know, and, and clips of him at home and, and the DAC music. So Dime Vision really gives us a chance to get to use all of that kind of stuff and share it with everybody. And, you know, when people see that, what they see of him on stage and, and on the road, he's exactly that same person, you know, at home. It's not a not a stage persona he he's he's down bag 24 7 you know so i kind of think it's cool that people get to see those things you know at parties or at a bar or or, you know at home or cooking dinner or whatever you know
1: yeah i agree Uh, and and, and i think that's very special to see too um i want to ask you about something you said in an interview previously back in 2014 you had mentioned that Dime would actually be surprised at how many people he touched. And, and, and that quote has always sort of intrigued me because I have a hard time seeing that he, that he couldn't see himself as larger than life. He had so many people, whether it's Scott Ian or, what, or Zach Weill, saying he's a great guitarist and he was... You know. was he really, would, you, would he really be surprised? Because he, he obviously touched a lot of people.
2: I didn't really think that he would. I don't think that, I mean, Darrell was a very humble person and I don't think he realized to the extent of what just a few minutes from him could give people. I mean, I mean, I know he, he had to know, yes, of course he had a lot of friends and he reached a lot of people on the road and things like that. But I really think that, like I said, he's such a humble person that, I don't, I don't feel that he would realize that, wow, man, I really meant this much or, or people really learned something from me or, you know, I mean, I, I really think that he, he would be, because you know? uh-huh. like I said, he was just such a humble person and so giving that I don't think he ever looked at it, at himself on the inside, you know, as far as, well, you know, or, or thought heavy on it, you know, it, it just came natural to him.
1: Yeah, and, and I actually met Dime once uh, backstage on the Anthrax uh, Pantera tour with uh, Sebastian Bach opening up, and he was so incredibly nice. And In fact, all of them were, quite frankly, uh, the Anthrax guys and, and, and the Pantera guys. Um, let's talk about this five-track audio CD with these unreleased demos. Now, the press release is quick to point out that they're not lost Pantera tracks, but talk to me about these four-track demos and and what he was compiling them for, were they just sort of random thought ideas eventually for Pantera or were they for a, a dime bag solo record or was it just sort of, you know, I'm just going to lay down some, some licks because I got nothing else to do today.
2: Yeah. You know, he just loved music. I mean, no matter what kind of music was it, even if it was a song he didn't even like or a kind of music he didn't like, he still found a way to have fun with it or enjoy it. And a lot of times, you know, when like a day off, even out on the road, because he'd, he'd record, you know, in the back of the bus or up in his hotel room uh, when he was at home. Sometimes it was uh, something funny happened or somebody did something. So he'd write a song about it. it or he'd do a parody of someone else's song and change the lyrics. And and then sometimes, you know, it was just, you know, some pretty heavy emotions or things that would hit him that he would write about. But, you know, music. uh it was his salvation. I mean, he was a huge fan. So that's what he did always was always just creating. Um, I'm not so sure. Yeah. If he really ever had plans for these, I mean, you know, as far as, you know, thinking on some solo record or anything like that, but he just, he just loved to record and, and it was uh, something he did. I mean, like I said, since the mid eighties and, and he loved it. So, uh, yeah, I think it's it's all kinds of emotions, you know, and, uh, and so, yeah, when we were going through, you know, that was another thing, too, was to go, well, man, I want to put this song in and this is a good one. And here's another one. So it was like, OK, no, let's we, let's just pick five. And, you know, we were trying to uh, do them, you know, put groups some things together, but also um, uh, spread it out a little bit because, you know, like you have the song True that he recorded in 1986. And um you know, and and it's completely like like I said, it, it sounds like George Michael, you know, and <laughs> and then you have those just really awful cathy O keyboards on there, but but the song, you know, the words to it and what he has to say, I mean, even back then, about just being true to yourself, and and then the way he sings it, I mean, like he's got some pipes, he kind of belts it out in that tune, you know? Yeah, which and, is uh, great to yeah, hear. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Really good, good. I, I hope everyone, but, but you know, like you were asking about, you know, Pantera influenced and stuff like that. I mean, there, there's a four track song that he did that wound up, uh, beco- becoming the song becoming, you know, and, uh, and by demons was another four track he did that had completely different words. And so, yeah, you just never knew where he was going to pull a riff on, from, even on some of his four track stuff, you know?
1: Yeah, now, now you had mentioned earlier that uh, the plan was to have one of these out every year and you sort of got uh, distracted or, or, you know, time sort of got the best yeah, of you. Yeah,
2: time,
1: yeah. Yeah, because time does go fast. But um, what are sort of the plans in terms I mean, what is, how can I put this? What's in the vaults that you want to get out, you know, in terms of footage and, and other songs and, you know, deluxe editions, this, like, sort of what
2: what do oh, you yeah, see? Go- yeah. There's a lot. I mean, I would love it if we can get around to sharing it with, you know, sharing all of it with everybody. But, uh, you know, uh, now that, you know, time has gone by and and the process of grieving is just a really weird thing. I know in probably the first five years, I know my life was just a fog and the time was just going by so quick as well. And I, I know it was for Bobby and for Vinny, too, you know. I mean, Vinny didn't even, everybody was trying to figure out what they were going to do without him. You know what I mean? And, and uh, figure out your life and, and kind of going forward. And so I know that took a lot of time as well, but you know, like I said, now everybody's kind of in a good place and, and just the time fit that we could get to this and, and things have slowed down, you know, a little bit as far as it moving so quickly and, and, and um uh, but yeah, so that that's still really our plan. I mean, I would th- the way that the music business is today and with all of everything being so digital, it's um you know, we were told that hey, there's no market for this type of stuff anymore, DVDs, you know. And uh we're pretty much kind of this one's you know, we started the pledge campaign to uh to, you know, we were we were pretty much turned down from our label they wanted to pass on it. So we're really using this to prove ourselves to show that hey, it's still in demand and and you know Daryl's fans and Pantera's fans. There's kind of a cult following when it comes to Pantera home videos. You know, there's some magic about them. And if if the fans get out there and support this package, then there will be another one. But, you know, it really kind of depends on that. On, the fans. on us proving ourselves. Well, well and know.
1: first of all, I'm I'm shocked that you would say they would turn that down because uh, I know you know. <laughs> so was I. Uh, <laughs> You know, just as a rock reporter, when you hear the word Dimebag or Dimebag Daryl, it, it's just you go, wow, yeah, you know, and you want to talk about it and you want to so that anybody would say, oh, yeah, anyway. Um, may I ask you just real quick about the grieving process or is, or is that sort of too touchy? Oh, no, no. Okay, no, because, no, um, you know, when, when when the interview was offered to me, and 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 mm-hmm. the subject is, is is touchy. I I try not to ask any questions that that I would upset somebody. And and so where are you in terms of of that? Is it a super sensitive topic? Is it like how how is it for the recovery to go through that? And and are there things that you know I could ask? And then like you know what I'm saying? Like is it, 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 has it sort of come around
2: now, or, or is it difficult, or? Um, and I think it's always going to be difficult and you know, there, there are days where I'm just fine talking about anything. And then I don't know, sometimes there are days where I just get really choked up and get emotional and you just, and it'll just hit you like a bus ran over you. You just, you can't control that. And, and, you know, time, time does help, but you never get past something like that. I mean, I know me personally, and I'm sure it's different for everybody. But uh, you know, that was something that I learned from Daryl as well. You know, he was the type. I know when they were going through all of the issues with Pantera and and, and with Philip. You know, Daryl was like, "Look, man, it's not talking shit if you tell the truth." And and I'm not. There's no subject that's off limits. You know, I'm not scared. You know, you hit me with what, you, and I'll try to do my best to answer. And you know. I find that talking about it, I know that has been the most amazing therapy for me is for his fans to have embraced me the way that they have. As far as when we would be out on the road and they would come by the booth and we'd sit and tell dime stories all day and take photos and people would come and tell you what he meant to, to, to them, even if they never got to see him live, just what his music meant. And, you know, that to me was there's no other kind of therapy like that, you know, and that's, I know what has helped me, you know, embrace what's happened and as far as wanting to get out of bed every day, you know? Yeah.
1: And and you can tell just, just by the way I asked the question, I'm uncomfortable because I have a great respect for, for, for you and for diamond. And, and I wouldn't want to, to ask anything that that would be untoward and, so you know, because it's it it even as a fan, you know I didn't I didn't live it like you did. But as I'm thinking about it now, I'm getting emotional about it because it, it it was know. <laughs> you know because because you it really do. you know because when you when you show up to a show, that is supposed to be your safe haven. That is supposed to be where you yeah. get away from the job. That's where you get away from the the whatever the the the, the girlfriend or the, or the, you know the fight or the, or the whatever the the traffic guy who cuts right. you off. It, and, it's, and, and it,
2: it's, it's unity, you know. People come there to gather for a love of some kind of of music that they enjoy, and yeah. And you're right; that should be uh,
1: yeah. your
2: place that's safe.
1: And 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 that that night, that incident, it it sort of robbed all of us of that of that safe haven where you just go, well, what, what's? And it, you know, I, I just it, I can't get over that. It's 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 unbelievable. Um, let me just quickly ask you about Pantera before before I start crying here.
2: <laughs> what would, would would you It's okay, I'm actually teared up. I know.
1: I know it's tough. Would you at some point like to see those three guys just get on stage and as a tribute or just as closure just say it's enough already. Let's just play 3 songs and say thank you to everybody and forget about all this nonsense. We're we're too old for this nonsense at this point.
2: You know, At the end of the day, I know those guys have been through, you know, some pretty hilarious times together, and they've been through some horrendous times together, and, you know, like I said, at the end of the day, they're still brothers, and there's kind of a bond there that I don't think you could ever sever, you know, whether they speak or not, or whether it's too emotional, you know, for Vinny or or so forth, you know, uh, with Rex and so But of course, you know, I'd love to see them jam together, you know, kick out a couple of tunes or something, but I totally understand not, you know, doing a, what they call a Pantera reunion because there just can't be a reunion when you're missing one well, of them.
1: And that I fully I agree that. with. I mean, if, yeah. should they ever play and, together and, I, and call it a reunion that, that, that would be, I don't know. I,
2: I just think, yeah, I, I don't think Vinny, I know, just wouldn't, he would just feel disrespected about that. And, you know, for his brother, and I think all of them would, as far as that respect factor goes. Because without any one of the four, you just couldn't do that. They're the four that created that magic. But, yeah, I mean, I think it'd be fun to, because I know we do Dime Bash and we have everybody come in and do all kinds of songs. And, and you know, and I pick out, the whole set list. And cause I mean, I go from, you know, songs that we had on our jukebox and what I know Daryl listened to and what he liked and, and, you know, CDs and stuff that I would burn him and, and tapes and things he would make me. And, um, but yeah, I, I would love to see him get up and bust out a couple of things. It'd be fucking amazing. But yep. I also understand and respect, you know, if it doesn't happen, you know, cause you just really don't know what goes on inside someone else's skin you know, but I do know me personally, as far as, you know, speaking with all the guys, of course, you know, last night at the Loudwire Awards, I saw Vinny and Rex both, you know, cause both were presenting and, and Wendy Dio and myself were, were doing the, um, the memorandum, uh, segment and, uh, or the memorial segment, I'm sorry. And, uh, you know, it was great to get a big hug from Vinny and, you know, and, and to see Rex too. And, but yeah, I, I think it would be really cool yeah. to see him play. Yeah, I mean, as a fan, as a fan myself, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and
1: that, that's 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 the perspective I'm asking from you know, as a fan that that would just be sort of like the ultimate tribute, I think. But and of course, I, I don't mean any disrespect to uh, to Vinny no, or Rex yeah. or anything I, like that. Uh,
2: yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I see it the same way. I'm like, you know, I totally understand. You know, if if you guys choose to to not you know uh, involve yourselves with each other's lives anymore, I respect that. But like you said, as a fan, and and being able to to share it with fans that I know never got to see them, that to me would be really cool too. You know, like I would like to see the you know the tunes that I know that you know Daryl had not you know recorded for that was you know apparently going to be the next Damage Plan record if they managed to keep. Uh, without firing pat but uh, (laughs) um i would like to see those tunes maybe circle back around someday and Vinny and rex play on them you know i think because daryl was pantera always in his heart and that's what he said and i just think those songs would be pretty amazing if they released them you know together
1: yeah that i agree and, and and i would i would Equate it to what um, the Beatles did years ago with uh, those leftover uh, John Lennon tracks, and they, 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 you know, real love and whatever those songs were, and that just turned yeah, out well. Yeah. yeah, wouldn't that be great? And
2: pretty awesome, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, and and I I would be right there with that. Um, and then let's just finish with this. And in, in terms of Dimebag and his guitar playing, what do you think that was so special and so unique about it that has just generated this this long lasting fandom and respect from people because there really is you know he really is a, a cut above sort of your just your average guitar guy I mean he's just he's just special
2: and, and, you know I think that has a lot to do with him being an open book and being so personable you know um, he didn't have like I said he didn't have to have a stage persona that's just who he was. And I think people, people knew that was genuine and the same with his playing. I mean, he, he, he totally like loved Billy Gibbons, you know, cause he goes, man, that dude can take a note and hold it for eight bars and, and just make it sing. And he was that kind of player himself. You know, it didn't take, you know, trying to put, I don't know, 20 different kinds of noodling in, into one song, you know, he could do it with just a few notes and you felt it. It came from his heart and his soul. And, And I think people felt that as well when he was on stage. To me, that's, I loved watching him play, you know, his eye contact, he included you. It was like there was nobody else. I know when I was watching him or filming him, you know, uh, I know in the first uh, Dime Vision Volume 1, there's a solo that I had filmed uh, when he was in Damage Plan and he was doing Walk. And I had mentioned to him that I, I go, you know, about the song. I go, you know, that's my favorite part in your solo where you take your fingers and you slide them down, you know. And in that segment, the reason uh, Bobby picked that particular solo, the one that I filmed, was because after I told him that, then he snapped. He snapped his fingers, pointed at me, did it, snapped them and pointed at me again. And it just made you feel like you know there was nobody else around. He was he was playing for me. You know, and I think he made a lot of people in that crowd feel that way. You know, he yeah. o- opened up and included everybody around him. If I'm going to be a rock star, so are you. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. look at those home, the, the Pantera home videos, you know the crew's name just as well as you know his name. You know, he's he opened it up and shared everything with everybody. Yeah. And I think that's what he did in his playing. He shared what was inside of him and people knew it.
1: Yeah, and that's what we're doing with uh, Dime Vision Volume Two here. Roll, o- uh, roll with it, or get o- or get rolled over. You're you're sharing with with the people. And uh, Rita, thank you. Just a a great great uh, pleasure. And of course, it's out November twenty fourth. But uh, thank you for your time today.
2: No, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm sorry about my voice.
1: <laughs> yeah. Hey. You know, uh, the, the, those loud wire. Uh, uh, events they, they, they get crazy. <laughs> they get crazy. Yeah,
2: we had a great time, man. Chris yeah. did a good job hosting.
1: so Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much.
2: Absolutely. You have a good
1: day. You too now. Bye-bye.
3: This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaVon.
1: Mitch LaVon. Bear Mattress is designed for optimal cooling, comfort, and muscle recovery, so you can sleep better and perform at your best every day. Go to bearmattress.com, that's B E A R mattress.com, and use code ROCK50 to take $50 off your new mattress. The bear mattress uses eco friendly materials and was developed with insights from sleep experts, professional athletes, and engineers to create a super comfortable and supportive sleep that is up to seven times cooler than traditional foam mattresses. The Bear Mattress uses FDA-determined salient textile technology so your body can recover faster, sleep better, and improve performance. Buying a mattress in a store can cost thousands of dollars, but Bear Mattress starts at just $500, and every size is under $1,000. The Bear Mattress is made in the USA, sold online and ships free right to your doorsteps, making it easy and convenient for you. My loyal, wonderful listeners, buying a bear mattress online is completely risk-free with a 100-night in-home trial. You get 100 nights to try out the mattress, and if you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you 100% of your money. That's right, 100 nights absolutely risk-free with no hidden charges or fees. Name the best mattress for active lifestyles by Gear Patrol. Go to Bear Mattress. that's B-E-A-R, mattress.com today. And use promo code ROCK50 for $50 off your purchase. And tell them Mitch sent you. That'll always get you an extra something. Pretty sure. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch Lafon certainly hope you enjoyed my uh, chat with Rita Haney talking about Dimebag Daryl's Dime Vision Volume 2. Do check that out if you have a chance. And uh, please, if you're uh, thinking about what I said at the top of the show with the Christmas albums, please do head over to the Rock Talk with Mitch Lafon Facebook page and at Mitch Lafon on Twitter and uh, send me those thoughts. I'm curious to know what you uh, have to say about that. But uh, let's move on to our next guest from Annihilator. It is Jeff Waters, a, a a man that I have a chance to run into quite a bit because I head over to the Brass Monkey in Ottawa for shows all the time or, in fact, TD Place in all kinds of places in Ottawa for Ottawa, Canada for shows all the time, and Jeff lives in Ottawa. And since we both sort of peruse the same or... or or hang around the same metal shows. I, I get a chance to talk to him quite a bit. But uh, their new album is called For the Demented. It is the follow up to 2015's Suicide Society. And uh, here we go. Without further ado, from Canadian band Annihilator, it is the one, the only, Jeff Waters. We are speaking with Jeff Waters of the band Annihilator. In fact, let me rephrase that. The great Canadian band Annihilator. Almost, what, 30-some years right now at this point? Was it thirty, thirty-two 32 years or something like that at this point?
0: Ye- yes. And, and, you know, of course, Roger Waters is not my father. If you Google <laughs> Jeff Waters, you usually get the Pink Floyd guy.
1: Yeah, what's okay. <laughs> I, I just interview- pause. Supposed- but, but you see, there's the
0: pause that you were, the pause. you were hoping not to get.
1: But I uh, listen that that is a much better get. I interviewed Bumblefoot, and all I got was the disease for chickens. So getting Roger Waters is, <laughs> is not a bad thing. But the uh, new album, which is out now, is called "For the Demented." Um, yep. Jeff, a pleasure to speak to you because we run into each other quite a bit. I saw you. Uh, I have some memorable times when I saw you. Uh, there was uh, Alice Cooper and Iron Maiden at Blues Fest in Ottawa, because nothing says the blues like Iron Maiden and Alice Cooper.
3: Ah,
1: but, right. uh, yeah, you were back there, and uh, I, I was there with the kids, and that was good. And then, of course, the Brass Monkey. There's always Annihilator and Jeff at the Brass Monkey. so good The thing. local hangout. The local <laughs> hangout, which, by the way, are doing great. Great, great uh, venue, great people, and there you go. But uh, for the demented. So let's talk about uh this album because you have always been a guy who's been in charge of the entire albums you've you've uh, everything i mean right you you write you you play you 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 produce you do but this time you brought in rich hinks uh to help yeah uh talk to me about that and also sort of seeding some of the control and saying okay let's get a different set of ears and opinions and all that stuff yeah, well, I
0: mean, like for for your listeners, that the annihilator for those who don't know us or just discovering us or think we maybe we have our second album coming out now. We're basic. I'm not even being sarcastic, by the way. Um, we haven't really toured, or uh, we haven't toured actually at all. Done a tour in North America since 1993, and we broke that last June by actually touring Canada. So that was amazing. But essentially, Annihilators had a 98% Europe career in Japan and, and South America. But mainly Europe has been where we've been going since 89. Uh, 16 records. Um, essentially, it started as... a. My uh, teenager uh, with uh, playing guitar and uh, found a singer named John Bates, and we wrote some songs. One of them turned into Alice in Hell, which was our kind of debut album that uh, got us kind of broke around the world. I don't mean broke as in money, but broke, break, whatever it is, uh, get known. Made us popular. And, uh, yeah, made, made made the start, got in there. Right. Um, but even, even um, it was the two of us, and I was like, okay, we need to find another guitar player, and a bass player, and a drummer. And... The, the natural thing you do when you want to start a band um, and I found the guys here in Ottawa were good musicians and nice guys but they just didn't have that drive that I had I wanted to do it to uh, play music 12 hours a day and get better at what I was doing as a band and as a musician and a writer and learn how to do it basically and the other guys understandably were young too and wanted to go to the clubs and look like rock stars and hang out with their girlfriends. And, and I just sort of put that all aside and just said, you know, that's not what I'm doing. Eventually moved out to Vancouver, put a band together, did this album, Alice in Hell. Um, and at the end of the tour for that record, um, after that record broke out worldwide, literally, um, our singer left just before the end of the tour in the States for the band Testament. And left us basically sitting on the bus going, what is going on? Did he just quit? And he went back to keep his seniority at his job in Vancouver. So that was the day I basically decided this was going to be a solo project. I wasn't going to rely on anybody else to sort of stop what we just got going or what I'd just been working for, for, you know, at that time, quite a while. Um, And we just kept putting records out. I would hire a singer and a drummer for the studio stuff and then, pick up a bass player and a guitar player and go on tour. Um, and it essentially, in Europe, it's just done fantastic since 89. I haven't had to have a real job, so to speak. It's been going great. I've been able to just artistically play any kind of heavy metal music I want, whether it's love songs, thrash songs, or anything in between, and classical guitar pieces, instrumentals. And the thing is, getting to your question is... You know, I when we had some success in the first four albums, did the old buy the house, build a studio and all that, and it was actually the perfect way to survive the sort of downtime of metal from 92 to to recently, which was buy a studio or build it, learn how to use the equipment, don't rely on anyone else, play your bass on your albums, write the bass, play the bass, do all the guitars, write the vocals, even sing on some of the records, and be self-sufficient that way so I could kind of Give the impression of a band, but behind the scenes it was obviously a, a solo project. And when you're the main writer, you're engineering, mixing, producing, mastering, playing all this stuff. You're going to have your ups and downs in your career for sure, creativity-wise. Um, and I loved it. It was a hobby, so I didn't really see why I needed to bring somebody else in. Even though I knew uh, as a producer that you know fresh years are usually the best thing for most bands, especially after. Way more than a dozen albums that we've we've had, um, and I getting it finally. I'm getting to your. I'm getting the answer right here. I finally realized I needed to bring somebody in on the new record writing process to basically steer me away from what I did on the last record, which was lay out all my influences on the record very blatantly, obviously. Didn't really have a filter on the fan side of my writing. Um, And I wanted to do the opposite. I wanted uh, somebody to come in and say, okay, uh, I know your music, Waters and Annihilator. I'm going to steer you away from being too much like your favorite bands and get you back to what people knew about you for the first eight years of your career kind of thing. And uh, in a nutshell, there we are. Uh, Rich came in and sat with me and was basically yes or knowing uh, whatever I was coming up with on guitar. And eventually he'd pick up a guitar and a bass. And literally within 3 days i realized this guy's writing the album with me he's not just giving me some co-production help here he's actually writing the music so he's credited with uh, half the music on the album too there you go how's that for a non-editable uh,
1: answer no but but is that some is that a, a process that you enjoyed was it scary to relinquish some of the uh, of the of the control, or now as you go forward and, and think of the next new album, you think, hey, maybe I should... No, start- as, as, long
0: as, as long as we... Because he was a great guy to get along with on the road with us. He's been our, our bass player for a few years, and I got the vibe right away that this is a, a smart guy. He's quiet, which I'm the opposite. I'm yappy-yappy, as you guys can tell right now. Um, and he's very quiet, but a smart guy knows classic sort of heavy and thrash metal from the 80s. So he knows his Megadeth, he knows his Priest and Slayer, but he also knows a lot of uh, sort of math metal and Scandinavian stuff. It takes a lot of timing and talent to play. So he was kind of like, when I brought him in, I wasn't even worried that he was going to speak up and try to overrule me on things and all this. I kind of felt like, okay, this is a safe person to get, which... You know, could have been good or bad. He could have been a yes man and just, you know, wanted to keep his job with the band on tour and, and just tried not to fight me on stuff. But I realized very quickly working with him that it doesn't matter whether you're, you're 28 or 30, what, from England, from anywhere in the world, what you do, whether you're a successful writer or not or whatever. If you're going to work with someone, you got to respect their, their, uh, what they want to contribute. And I ended up sort of always having that little, I get the 51% uh, say in it, but I never even had to pull that extra 1% out of the, uh, pull that out. It was almost like we just sat there and we were co-writing, and that's exactly what happened. It was not even a, a case of, ooh, I don't want to tell Waters that that riff sounds just like Hanneman and King or Hetfield or Gary Holt. It, it was more like, that really is Gary Holt, buddy. you gotta, you got to try something different there.
1: Yeah, so... You know? um- you, you know, this is album number what sixteen, I believe. So you've had yeah. all these ones in the past. The band does very well touring, like you said, Europe and and so on and so forth. What sort of compels you to write new music? Why not just say, hey, "I've got fifteen albums. I can book a tour in Europe. They're we're, they're going to see the Alice in Hell stuff and a couple other greatest hits and easy easy money." Why, why sort of say, "Okay, I got to I got to do this and, and go through the process."
0: Well, it's always been, no matter where I was in my career with this, this thing, um, it, if, if I, I always said, I don't know if this even makes sense, but if I'd won a lottery years at any point in my little career, I would have been, you know, you would have done, I would have bought a couple of nice, nice cars. Well, I have a couple of nice cars, but really, really nice cars. (laughs) You know, it just would have been, I would have done something else, maybe traveled or maybe got a place somewhere warm or whatever. And I guarantee I would have been within three months trying to set up my studio in the new place or or whatever. And within a year, I'd be like sitting here going, you know what? I, I really don't care if I have a dollar or a billion dollars. I, I want to do this. A lot of people, I think, and I've got to, of course, tour with a lot of well-known bands and, you know, bands of longevity that have been around for longer than us and around the same amount of time. And you do see when people are just tired of it and don't want to tour and just it's hard to get them creative and all this kind of stuff. I'm 51 and I'm just totally uh, psyched to to do things like tour with Testament in a few weeks, uh, Death Angel, some other tours coming up. I'm, I'm totally into music. I go to Bell Center or Metropolis over in Montreal all the time with my girl to see shows. And when I'm touring in Europe, I'm almost watching other bands. So it's kind of what I love. It's not just a hobby and a job and... And that it's just a total love of of the bands that I like, right? You know, like yeah. the genre, but but all kinds of music. And it's I don't even know where the question, uh, what the question was, but refresh it, me.
1: It doesn't matter. <laughs> let, let, let me move on here because I, I do want to talk about the touring thing. You know, Montreal has has attempted to set up a heavy Montreal festival, which you in fact played. Right. Um, I believe it was Kiss and Motorhead was on the bill that night, right? Right. Um, but you do tour Europe and South America and those other markets very, very uh, regularly and not here. What is sort of the challenge for a metal band to come here? Because, you know, listen, there have been Guns N' Roses shows here. There have been, you know, uh, Venom shows here. There ha- Why has it been more difficult for Annihilator? Or is it just not difficult? You just get paid more to go to Germany, so I'll just go to Germany.
0: No, it's it's, it's actually a real specific set of reasons that might my- might not make any sense for other bands, but in my case, uh, try to make the, I'll try to make it short. We had our 89 to 93 run in North America. The first two records, 89 and 90, did very well, and we were doing some awesome touring. But but I, I guess I or we came in right at the end of the 80s. Literally, we were almost a 90s band if we waited a few months. Um, so in... You know, for those who weren't there or here or of age or whatever back then, right around I think after the greats in the early '90s, like Painkiller and uh, like Priest and, and Rust in and Peace and that, um, a few years after that, around '92ish, there was literally memos sent out to North American record companies saying anything that has heavy metal in the bio, get rid of it unless it's selling huge numbers and. You had even my label at the time blatantly saying to to me and many other bands, um, unless you change the name of your band and play in the style of, quote, Pantera, Sepultura, or Biohazard, uh, we pretty much think that your career is over, so to speak, and they they were dropping us. They were kind of sure that the career would be over for a lot of us. so that was something that if you weren't around at that time as a band, you, you, you'd find hard to believe. But that is when metal in North America went out, traditional 80s stuff. And and the proof is, you, you know, I, I was in Vancouver. I would see Slayer and Judas Priest in the, uh, the, the, the arenas in Vancouver, my, my whole time out there, or a lot of the time out there. And then all of a sudden, we hit the mid and later 90s, and Judas Priest was playing at 86th Street Music Hall in Vancouver, which was basically a club. And you had Slayer playing in um, the Commodore Ballroom, which is a club. So it's like, you know, I, I was watching bands play to fifteen, twenty thousand, 20,000, and then five, six years later, they're they're barely putting 2,000 in. So that was a real depressing time for me musically living in Canada. But um, after we were dropped, and most others were dropped in 93-ish, um, I, I figured I was going to try to get a job in the studio, blah, blah, blah. And my manager at the time, a month after I was dropped from, uh, Roadrunner and Sony, um, he said, well, why would you quit? There's, uh, we're getting offers in from, from Japan and, uh, UK and German labels for you. And I'm like, really? And that was it. I put another album out after that called King of the Kill. And that was that pretty well. That was the album that sort of, uh, cemented my career over there. So I didn't come to North America ever because. Nobody wanted to sign us. The clubs, if anybody was around back in that time, they shut down metal. Metal was not playing in clubs anymore. It was There was, it used to be hundreds of clubs across Canada, for example, and they were usually connected to a strip bar, but that's a different story. Um, and, you know, in 92, 93, they started shutting down, and, and now... And that was it for the '90s, right? Um,
1: yeah. And by the you way, you're, you're of very them. right at the strip bar thing. I mean, you know, we talk about the brass <laughs> monkey in Ottawa, but they used to be the Obsession Club, and the basement was a strip club. And this is like three years ago. So, you know, it's, yeah, you it's,
0: know. it was a totally different time. And you know, metal was essentially the third biggest genre of music in the, the, the business of music in the world. And at that time, it was so big. And, and there's so many reasons why. I mean, these things obviously have to cycle out, and then. You know, some people point the finger at the LA bands that came in near the end there and the, the glam, but that's that's ridiculous too because you had bands like, okay, Annihilator, Slayer, who if you look at our early promo shots, we were wearing makeup and puffing up our hair like Motley Crue. So it's not a, it's you can't blame it on these great bands from LA, which were maybe a little cheesy, but it, they were great musicians. It was just something that had to cycle out, and I cycled out with them, but I didn't have the problem of. Uh, getting deals and and selling records overseas. It just kept going up and up for us. In fact, one of our biggest records was after we got dropped over there. Then I basically, what happened is I got a little cocky. I went over there, enjoyed my career for a decade and a bit over there, saw that metal was coming back in North America. And obviously not the same level uh, in the business side as it was before, but it was, I knew it was there. You could just see, you could see what was going on. And, People were kind of getting tired of the new metal and looking for other stuff. They started discovering Priest and Maiden and all the big bands from the 80s and appreciating them, and then that trickled down to the, you know, back to this, well, Slayer, were always there, but, you know, it trickled back to Slayer's popularity rising. Then people were discovering Exodus more, Testament, Overkill, and Anthrax and all these bands, and that were not doing well here, uh, too well here um, for quite a w- long time. And I thought I could jump back in there and I was a reality check hit me, which was the labels in the States were telling me, uh, congratulations on your success, continues to success overseas, Jeff, but you're not a new band. You are not willing to sign a contract that is, is literally criminal, but I won't even get into that. I wasn't willing to sign a really crappy deal that was not fair to give to anyone. And and we were never a big band in the States. Uh, anyway, we were always just sort of down there, you know, medium, low, <laughs> kind of level band. So it wasn't like a big reunion. The Annihilator comes back. So I had a kind of quick reality check within a month. And, and that was it. I just dropped it at that point and said, Ah, I guess my time has passed uh, way back and just continue doing what you love doing overseas. And there it is. The only thing we've been able to do now is come back and uh, do a Canadian tour, but no agency would uh, book us, so I did it myself, and it was a uh,
3: fantastic. Well,
1: yeah, and and you're good at doing that stuff yourself. So so I guess the, the the shorter the answer is that the the fan base in Europe and South America is established, and it's easy to tap into here you're basically starting with, you know, 10 length behind the leader kind of thing and 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 it's it's just too yeah. hard. Okay.
0: And and you know what there's there's other reasons too. I'm not blaming it on anyone but uh annihilator are not an aggressive type band. We have our sort of aggressive themes and and riffs sometimes in songs but we're not as much of that screaming. and I don't mean screaming as in a negative thing. I mean, like, it, we're not that band where you see the, the name of the band as a kid in the States or Canada, 18-year-old who's into Lamb of God, and that Lamb of God is like a light version of what they're listening to. Uh, as soon as they Google or YouTube Annihilator, if they hit the wrong song, which is pretty likely, they're just going to go, what the hell is this? Because well, what's this classical guitar piece? What's this love song? What's this sort of... A lighthearted humor song. What's okay? There's a sort of Slayer-y or Megadeth-y vibe in this, but the other things I've uh, heard are just not heavy or not in in the style that's going on. Anyway, so there was no blame there. It was just you know, hey, when you get out of a market or an area, and you stay out of it and enjoy uh, your success somewhere else, uh, don't expect to come back in and have any uh, anyone. The, the sad thing for me is so a tiny bit of sadness, is that I know that if I could get down to the States and do a tour, uh, there are a fair amount of fans there that are angry as hell that I haven't been down there. So,
1: Yeah, and then, well, maybe you can get, get some festival shows going on. Um, bands yeah. and vocalists. When you think Aerosmith, you think Steven Tyler. When you think Led Zeppelin, you think Robert Plant. Um, yeah. You've done... Well, not done, but you've had many vocalists come in and out, but you've also sang yeah. on albums. W- where was the decision where you said, I'm not going to be the singer for this band, I'm going to go out and get John Bates, I'm going to go out and get Randy, I'm going, and, and how has that affected the music, that there's not been a voice of Annihilator, that there's been multiple yeah, voices? It, I mean, uh,
0: for 100% sure, not only having singer changes will affect the band. He usually kills most bands. I mean, not everybody gets to do a Paul Diano Dickinson or gets to do a, a Bon Scott, Brian Johnson, or, you know, what I mean. Um, and you add to that the fact that my definition of heavy metal, when I was young, heavy metal was marketed or was, it was not marketed. It was called, if you bought Cream or you bought Hit Prater or whatever, any of the big magazines, KISS, ACDC, and Van Halen were called heavy metal when I started. Um, well, well, so was like Bon Jovi and Poison
1: for a while. So, <laughs> exactly, <you know. laughs>
0: exactly. Yeah, and in, in that, comparing to that, Skid Row would have been a really heavy band when they came out with their first album compared to the, you know, the Van Halen and the, you know, this. So, heavy metal to me has always been everything from loudness, Scorpions, all that. But if I want to sort of Move on with the times. Of course, Sabbath, Priest, Maiden. I mean, there you go. And then we got into these new definitions, you know, thrash, speed, blah, blah. But I've always liked all of that. And I've just called it, I've called it, uh, when somebody asked what kind of music to play, I said, well, heavy metal and thrash metal. That's kind of, I think, where it is. There's a little bit of thrash metal in, in a lot of songs and albums. And heavy metal in general is there. So you're, you're going to get you know, lots of stuff in there. But that's that's also... You know, I had a, a talk with Dime, uh, obviously Pantera, about this because we did, um, they, they they actually <laughs> played first on a bill where we were in the middle and special guest to Judas Priest on their painkiller tour in Europe. So we did two or three months uh, with Priest and Pantera did the first part of it and we shared a bus with Pantera and this is when they were unknown. Cowboys from Hell hadn't been released at the beginning of the tour in Europe there, so people didn't know them. And... Dime and I would sit in these huge arenas on this incredible tour, and talk about things, and we laughed because there was a complete opposite way of doing things between him and I in our bands. And but at the same time, we had the same influences. His solos are basically, he said, and it's true, is Van Halen with the rhythm of a Sabbath and a Hetfield with a Lars drum sound, blah blah blah. So we went on, and they specifically targeted two or basically three influences and bands and they, they really studied how they were going to make their own sound on Cowboys, not power metal before that, but starting at Cowboys and they had it down so well and they, they loved what, what they were going to be doing with it. And it was amazing. And that was a recipe for success. Knowing those guys in the early days, whereas we, we joked about my side because we were already on our biggest album called Never Neverland. And we were quote the successful band at the time. And he and I were laughing because my first song on my first album is a classical guitar piece. My second song is called Alice in Hell, and that's the farthest thing from Speed and Rash Metal. It's a, like a commercial hard rock, heavy metal song. And he was saying, well, you're going to have a lot of fun playing a lot of different styles. We're sticking to our one style. And we, we joked about that. And uh, man, was he ever... I mean, that, that's it. If you, if you do what I did and have four singers in your first four albums, that's a commercial... That's a recipe to completely fail. And I think what happened with me is I just got very, very lucky. Each of those four first albums were totally different with different singers, different productions, different heavy metal styles. And that's why I think we didn't really... Well, of course not. You're not going to become a super huge band if you've got four singers and four albums. It doesn't make any sense, right?
1: Right. So um,
0: Yeah, um, so I think that that actually attributed to why you know, why I'm still around all these three decades later and and sort of on an up-lifting kind of sales going up for five or three albums now and, and, and the slots at the shows and the tours are getting bigger and the money's getting better. I think it's because after a long time of being around loving what you're doing, some people start to notice that and they start going, you know what, I should maybe have a listen to some of this stuff.
1: Do you ever look back, and I don't mean with regret, but look back and say... Maybe I should have just been the lead singer all the way through and just... No. Mm-hmm. No? Why not? No, I
0: could. Like I, I'm a guitar player first. Uh, the only time I really sang was on a demo. At uh, the beginning, was on a demo cassette tape when I didn't have a singer after the John Bates. Uh, and me and the rest of the guys just realized that I was going to be doing this 12 hours a day and they were going to do it two hours a week. That's when I sort of very... I don't know. I just sort of said, okay, first of all, Ottawa is not the place I need to be. I need to go where there's a lot of musicians that like this kind of music. So I planned as a kid, I said, I'm getting on the plane with a suit, couple of suitcases and three guitars, which were stolen at the first hotel I landed at in, in Vancouver. Um, and I was going to go out somewhere where I knew there was a lot more musicians to, to choose from. But, um,
1: and by the way, I always no, no, thing, you thing from, it was you were. I always thought you were from Vancouver because when we first hmm. quote unquote met via the internet, and started emailing each other. It was always you were out in Vancouver. No, was, I was uh, back, like, in born 90. in
0: No, I was basically born in '66 in, in Ottawa, and I had um, a military kid's life where I'd go and uh, i live in London, England, for three years. I'd lived in different places in the world, in Camp Borden, Ontario, uh, base military base, and and then we sort of stabilized in Ottawa when I was like eight or nine or something or ten or whatever. And um, until '87, 1987, I was in Ottawa. And then I sort of did the demo stuff. Realized there was a lot of interest from in record companies and things. People actually wanted to sign us based on those demos in '87 um, that I was doing and I was singing myself on. That's when I realized, you know, I got to do it right. I got to get a band here. I have to get this. I got to get out of Ottawa and I got to do this properly. And it took me a couple of years, but. Then I went to Vancouver and moved back to the Ottawa area in 2003. Yeah. But yeah. I think with the singing, I did it out of necessity in the demo days, and I didn't want to sing because if you if you can ever catch any of these early Annihilator clips, were sort of hard hard to find from '89 and '90. I'm just standing in the back with my long hair, bobbing it up and down, head banging, and concentrating on playing just like the rest of the guys in the band. Except, and and, and the idea was. Our singer, Randy Rampage, or the second guy, Coburn Farr, they're the front man. That's their job. They go up front and they, they get all the attention and, and all this. I wasn't into the attention, the image, the this and that. All I wanted to do was play guitar. And I had absolutely no problem or ego clashes with the singer going out there and doing their stuff because I found out really quickly that fans and press figured out who was writing the stuff and who was actually behind it. I didn't need anything other past that to feed an ego or anything like that. I just let these guys do what they did best. And because of that, we had some really original voiced singers and some great front men like Randy Rampage, your first guy was just the best front man ever. He was like a cross between Sid Vicious and uh, and, and a, a crazy metal front man. He was just like a punk rocker getting up there and killing himself every night by diving into the crowd and getting the crowd going. It was like the best thing ever. I ended up singing on the fourth record, um, thinking that that was the end of my career, but I wanted to do it anyway because uh, my John Bates, actually, uh, my original writer friend and my girlfriend at the time said, you know, you sing on the demos for these singers and you produce the vocals in the studio. You know exactly what you want. Why don't you sing? And they literally pushed me into doing that. And we ended up having the second biggest record in Japan of of 1995. <laughs> it was just like, so you're, you're thrown in being a singer, and you're not a singer. You're just like barely cutting it, and now you have to learn how to do what guys like Dave Mustaine and Hetfield do uh, and have been doing all their life, and you've got to do it, um, play guitar and sing live, and you've never done that before. That's just the most insane thing, and you realize really quickly that Dave Mustaine is probably... In metal is probably the most talented dude for playing guitar and singing because he plays stuff with his hands on his guitar that is in one sort of time signature tempo and his vocals are in a different time it's like not it's not a note thing it's a a time thing it's like having two different drummers playing two different things and uh, I had no idea till I started singing and playing guitar that that was such an art form and that's why like guys like Dave Mustaine you see him up you see him up there and it looks easy and Blah, blah, blah. It's actually the hardest thing in the world, and, uh, and I keep going. So there you go. Yeah, I was forced and, into it and then re into it, and every time I seem to do this, I may get criticism, but our, our, our fan base just buys the records and our, in, our sales increase. It's just ridiculous. So I'm loving every second of it.
1: Yeah, and of course, we, we, we do have to give some love to James Hedgefield as well. I mean, he does a killer job. Yeah, he won't. You know. I said,
0: said Hedgefield and Mustaine. Oh, I means he's it. second. Okay.
1: <laughs> all right, all right. I, I missed it, but all right. Um, you mentioned military kids, and there's there's another famous Canadian artist who's a military kid. That's that's good old Brian Adams, and I have his Reckless CD on my yes. counter, staring at me. Um, yep. Set the world on fire, your uh, third album, right? Third. Yes. Yep. You recorded it partly at his studios out in Vancouver. And, and because we've had a chance to speak off the record and stuff before, you 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 have a great Brian Adams story. So, if you if you can uh, share with the listeners how Annihilator almost or in fact invited Brian Adams to sing on a song and also recorded. <laughs> I love this story. It's a great yeah, story. Yeah.
0: I okay. Well, basically, '93. I'd been in Vancouver for I guess about six years, and in Vancouver. Uh, Living there, I'd had already two albums out, Alice and Hell and Never Never Neverland, and and the second one being our big one, so to speak. So it was kind of like you're in a city with a massive amount of, you know, the movie industry was starting up. It was going to end up being for 10, 15 years called Hollywood North. Uh, the, The recording studios, Mushroom Studios, but mainly Little Mountain Studios, became... A the, the common well, name became, in it, it became
1: ground zero yeah. for music. I mean Aerosmith, Motley Crue, uh, Bon Jovi, and then all the other bands. Yep. You know your your stings and I mean Coverdale,
0: Page, yep. and Aerosmith albums. And yeah, you name it. It was and and it what happened was all these amazing engineers. And it, it turned out later that when, when another owner bought the studio. Uh, after it's the peak of its success that it wasn't the studio at all it was it was the people working at Blob, Bob Clear Mountain Randy Staub Bob Rock uh just all the amazing Ken Lomas all these amazing uh, engineers and producers and mixers that flocked to that studio and a lot of them were from that area um so when it got bought and the rumor was that the person who bought it or something caused some friction and I think the people just basically packed their stuff up and left and then the studio ended or whatever. Um, but I was there kind of at the peak of that. And um, let me see what was happening around there. We had to do this single. I remember because we got bought by Sony. I think it was, uh, we went from Roadrunner Records to Roadrunner Sony at that point, And there was a lot of pressure then on labels because of that, 92 time was the time when people were saying uh, metal is maybe on the way out unless it's going to change and there was just before it it was on the way out and people were labels were screaming for like screaming at bands like Saigon Kick to do a ballad and people want this this uh extreme ballad you know what was that um, more than words you know kind of ballad was a necessity on a record so I had no problem doing that because I—that's totally in my DNA. The Scorpions ballads and you know even Ozzy did ballads and Priest and all that Beyond the realms of death and and that. So for me to do a ballad, it was yeah sure why not. Um, so we did uh, song Phoenix Rising, and I was in Brian Adams' studio in Vancouver, but it wasn't in his famous warehouse studios where uh, he's had for years the big fancy one. It's uh, it was in his home. So. I was literally in the basement, uh, yes. overlooking, the, overlooking part of West Vancouver where he lived. And Randy Staub, uh, of course, we know him from—I I know him from Thornley because I love Thornley and stuff. But of course, Metallica. I mean, this is Bob Rock's guy. Um, and I was in there with Randy Staub working on the song "Phoenix Rising," and and Brian Adams would come down and say hello, and you know, and anyway, I I found out he was. Um, we were talking, and it turns out that uh, my aunt here in Ottawa taught Brian's school here in Ottawa. So we had lots in common, and over the years, he'd invite me to concerts, and I'd see him at Little Mountain Studios or, you know, not became friends as in, like, hey, calling up and going out, but just, you know, we'd see each other and go, hey, how's it going? You know, um, and one day he said, you know, he was coming down and listening to the, the tunes, and I tried to see if he might want to sing on one of the songs, but nope. <laughs> which Which, from a metal guy's perspective, might have been a a career killer, but it would have been an artistic uh, musician Yeah.
1: Now, did he come down like in oh, slippers and in pajamas, or was he? <laughs> was it a normal part of the Yeah, day?
0: yeah, basically, <laughs> basically, coffee, whatever, and it was like, we had this song called, uh, on that record, called The Edge, and it was, if you, you know, if you go back and go on YouTube, it, it was definitely a commercial metal, hard rock song, um, and that was the sort of most commercialish Annihilator record you're going to get is, is the one called Set the World on Fire. But there was a song called uh, The Edge, and if you actually took the voice off that or even listened to it now, you could actually hear that Adams had some kind of impact on me. I saw him when I was a kid, and, and you know you hear him on the radio, and somehow that got into the song The Edge, and I thought, I wonder if he'd sing on it. But it didn't pan out. It was, I, I think he just ran. <laughs> but anyway, so he... Uh, yeah. He had, you know, come down and coffee and have a listen and and all this kind of stuff. His brother pulled one of my tooth out too. His his brother is a, was a dentist, was a dentist, and he uh, ends up yanking up one of my back teeth. <laughs> That's not <laughs>
1: but, bad. But but you also forgot. Yeah, and the have... other thing is,
0: yeah, he would ahead. always have competitions. Competitions was is one of his friends, Sting, to to see who which Sting or he would sell more units and more singles and. Almost all the time, Sting would win, and yeah, he was there. It was a lot of fun. That's right. Yeah, I mean, it was really cool. It was like my my kind of schmoozing with the the fancy commercial uh, big artists and stuff. I got to sort of get a taste of what how it's like to live like that and all that stuff without being in that uh, league. You know what I mean? So it was yeah. fun. I learned a lot about recording and a lot of things.
1: But it 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 just strikes me as as uh, well, I don't want to say comical because that, that almost sounds. But it's just funny to think that here you are re- recording "Set the World on Fire" and. Annihilator album and you're in Brian Adams' basement and he and Sting are standing there watching and checking out the music. Did, did they run out? <laughs> I mean, did they run surreal. out? Screaming? Yeah, it was kind of surreal. surreal. And of course... I got a
0: better one. I got a better one connected. The next record called King of the Kill yeah. was one that I don't even think it was... It may have been released here, but I doubt it. It wasn't released in the States. It was one year later from the, you know, being in Brian's house... The year afterwards, I ended up mixing the album King of the Kill, which, again, was our big one overseas, and uh, I mixed it in uh, Paul Dean, the guitarist from Loverboy's house. So I wow. ended up, the, those two two albums ended up being mixed or done partially in, um, all, of, all of King of the Kill was mixed at Paul Dean's house, but... Uh, so it was just funny how I look back, and, and it's it's a typical Canadian story, right? I'm a Canadian musician. I grew up on Loverboy and Brian Adams on the radio and on the video and channels, and, and you end up doing a metal record, some of your bigger metal records in, in their homes.
1: <laughs> so. Which is great. And by the way, Six Degrees of Separation, Paul Dean was uh, one of the guests on my very first episode. Of uh, wow. rock Talk and uh, Andy Summers of the Police was the other guest on the very first episode. So there you go. All, all interconnected. Oh, that's, yeah, that's not a bad. That's not a bad lineup. Loverboy and the Police, and and of course, just to quickly uh, set the world on fire. Since you were talking about um, more than words by Extreme, you had Mike Mangini play drums on a few of those tracks, and of course, he did something. Oh, yeah, out. right. That's right. And he spent. No, some... I know that.
3: There's another.
0: It's a small world, even though it's a different kind of music and. Different things. Yeah, I might mention he played on, I think, three or four. I'm not sure how many records, but sporadically on different records we've had o- over the career. And he's a good friend, nice guy. Everybody knows he's a drum genius. But I got him to play in a few later records um when he was back when super duper money was flowing. And he joined Extreme and then he went off to Steve Vai and he was getting some huge money doing just doing drum clinics, doing an hour and a half of touring the world. And in Asia, Europe, and North America, making massive amounts of money just showing and performing and teaching drums. And I would call him up and say, "Would you want to do this annihilator record or the the next one?" And and occasionally, every two or three, he would say, "Sure." And uh, the coolest thing about him was he was at one point. I think he was commanding a fee of like twenty or thirty thousand bucks. And now that's not the way it works now in the business, obviously, but. I mean, to do an album, right? So I think he was getting some massive money to do people's records. And uh, and I remember on one album that he did, I think it was called All For You, I had literally 2000 bucks, <laughs> So I told him, I said, Mike, here's the bad news. I get 2000 bucks, And he goes, Jeff, if you can come down here, I got a friend of mine who produced, uh, and here's another one, who worked on... Um, What's Marky Mark? Uh, his band uh, actor uh, Mark, Mark Marky Walbert.
1: Mark and the and the fun the the fun bunch the funky bunch
0: what, what, whatever they were yeah, called. Yeah. What was the what was the big band the boy band not Backstreet Boys not boys uh, what was it? Uh,
1: uh, no, hang, ha- hanging tough, hanging tough. Uh, New Kids on the Block. No, the the,
0: the brother in Wahlberg was in it. Donny or
1: yeah, but that, it was Marky <sighs> Mark and the Fun Bunch or something like that.
0: No, no, no. But what was what was the boy band the real big one?
1: Well, there was the New Kids NSYNC? on the Block. No, not Instinct. There was new kids, new kids on the, the block. There we go. Yeah. So I had this, this. By the way, so here we go.
0: Set the world on fire in in Adam's house. Some of that. Paul being from Boy for the mix for King of the Kill, and the next uh, and shortly after that, I guess at some point, you end up getting the 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 engineer guy for New Kids on the Block doing the drums for the All for You album with Mike Mangini, and Mike had said two grand. Holy crap! He goes. Can you afford a flight down to Boston? I'll get you in the studio for free and uh, get the engineer. And uh, that's how cool of a guy Mike was. He, he knew that, that my career was struggling for about 10 years to just to keep it going, literally, at that point um, later on. And he just, he just did it for two grand. I mean, it was, and he set up the studio and the engineer, and he did it. He just did it all uh, in like three or four days, and bought pizza and everything. He was just like the coolest dude in the world, and still is.
1: Mike, Mike is great, and uh, and just I, I looked it up. It's Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch. The, their hit single was "Good Vibrations," but we don't need to know. That.
0: It, you know. Okay, here's here's my <laughs> last one. Here's vibration. my last here's my last cool one. Set the world on fire. Um, the, the 93 album, we flew down to do a video, uh, one of the airports, not the main LA airport, but another one. And after the video shoot, the director goes, you guys want to go out and see a band? And I go, yeah. And he, we drove around and all these SUVs looking for a club to see a band and nobody was really playing that night. So he goes, okay, I can get you into this one. I know where we're going. And we're like, where he goes, just, we'll just go. And we got in the back door backstage. Uh, VIP because of this director who just worked on Mick Jagger's video or something, and we go in the back door and it, it was Marky Mark, uh, that band you're talking about, uh, Walberg's solo the band. The Funky
1: thing. Bunch, yes. <laughs>
0: yes. So you got the Annihilator guys, uh, Mike Mangini, and all the myself and the guys bored on a night uh, after shooting that video, set the world on fire, and we walk into the back of uh, you know 98. Basically, it was 98 percent. Um
1: well, no, I will not even say it. Probably was all no, it
0: wasn't no no, it wasn't. It was actually he was really popular in the gay community. So we get in the that band was totally his band was totally popular in in that community. So we went in the back and we were like, There's not really many girls here. And then we went, Ah, I get it. <laughs> so it was like we watched and we thought it was pretty funny. He was running around with his shirt on uh, off, I mean, and singing and we were like this is the most trippiest thing in the world. We're in Los Angeles shooting, set the world on fire. Now we're watching Marky Mark.
1: That is that that that's a story right there. Um, you know, so much more to go over. Of course, the new album is for the Demented, which is out now. But I, I'll finish with this question, and um, because you mentioned that there was a time where it was struggling, there was a ten-year period wasn't wasn't going so well, and, and Mike yep. was. Con- yep. Why uh, did you have that conversation with yourself where you said? Do I I I gotta go work at? I gotta go be an accountant. I gotta go. Like, did you have though that moment where you just said it's over? No, I like, no. I think
0: I was being a little overdramatic, making it look like times were terrible. They, I had already had the success of this King of the Kill album in '95, and the the one called Refresh the Demon After was similar overseas. And so there was money coming in. I was looking after my own finances. Had great, great contracts. And really tried to take care of business, so there was money, and I didn't blow all the money. What I did was I bought a house and a, built a recording studio, and that that left me the ability when times from 1997 to 2007 that were down for Annihilator, where we still put out records and toured, but they were not financially profitable things. I mean, you, if I hadn't had something else in the background, I, I definitely couldn't have kept it going. Um, what happened was I just realized, well, I have the studio, I have the studio knowledge and I hooked up with a songwriter from Nashville by accident and ended up doing uh two things in that time frame. Just keep supporting an eye later. I wrote uh it's a long story, but under a different name, I wrote uh, what ended up being country ballads for country artists out of Nashville. And that turned into, you know, TV shows like little Canadian show called cold squad uh, was a police show. And, it ended up I got a song uh Entertainment Tonight. Um oh, it's interesting. John Tesh. Remember, remember way back there in D Space Nine Mary Hart <laughs> Yeah, ex- <laughs> exactly. And and John Tesh it was, was doing all the music on that show but I got a ended up getting a song in there and then there was uh Space Nine and all these cool things were happening where You know, songs were getting done by country artists, and then I realized, holy crap, there's money in this, and then I was doing some studio work in between, and not not playing for other people, but just, you know, mixing people's albums, and so I was kind of financing it, but from the Annihilator perspective, there was no budget, there was not a lot of money to do records for 10 years there.
1: You know, it's funny because we, we always talk about band and brand, and Annihilator has had a million line of changes, and, and, and I say that sort of somewhat facetiously, but yeah. the brand has gotten you through it, but it's also worked against you because when you go do the country stuff, if you say you're Jeff from Annihilator, they go, yeah, well, goodbye. And so...
0: Yeah, it, and it, it, it I also came... The other side of that is I came from... Or to the same side of that, another issue there is I came from this the school literally of... When you were in high school or whatever it was, and, or, or a little after, and you had a Slayer shirt on and you were a hardcore Slayer fan, which that's got to be in my top three favorite bands of all time. Not just because of Slayer, but, uh, Slayer the band, and the music, but because in that downtime of metal, these guys went from that 20,000 down to 2,000 in Vancouver and they played like they were, played like they were playing to 50,000 people in 1987. It was like the most inspirational show I ever saw is Slayer in a club because that's all they could play in at the time anyway um the the downside there was if when i was a kid or high school if you wore a slayer shirt and some other kid was wearing a bon jovi shirt you could bet your butt that the 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 bon jovi guy was going to get at the minimum teased and bugged if not spit on or, or pick a fight on him so there was a a really ridiculous thing going on in different I think it was different cities, because it didn't happen in some Canadian cities, but in Ottawa at the time, and I know in Europe and different places, you were called and labeled a poser if you had a Bon Jovi shirt on, yet you could wear a Slayer shirt and you were cool and tough. And the the funniest thing is, of course, you look at the original promos of Annihilator, Slayer, or any of these bands that we've got makeup and poofy hair and funny boots on and wristbands and things like that. So yeah. we weren't far off from what we what, what people were calling posers at the time. Yet, you know, so I, when I did Alice in Hell and Never Neverland and had the European success, I didn't want my name out there as Jeff Waters just wrote a song for Celine Dion or something stupid like that, right? It, it kind of would have been a killer, I thought, to my career. And reality is not nah, when it killed your career. That that was a time when the people were well over this silly distinction of if you were a displayer, you couldn't like something else, you know?
1: And And by the way, is that something that you would want to do like really just put out a Jeff Waters solo album and do more of a country thing or more of a pop thing or more and just not be the metal guy for 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 one album. No, no,
0: uh, you know what? I've really I've really had a lot of not a lot, sorry. I've really had a lot of opportunities to do work for a well-known video company in Vancouver back in the nineties. I could have kept my done most of the work for that company in my home studio out there. I I didn't have to leave the house almost, and I could work out of a fancy studio. I was offered to do a lot of gigs, you know, joining other bands. I mean, from metal bands up to sort of more commercial rock and metal bands, and people would, you know, especially when I had long hair, that helped. Um, But uh, I've had these opportunities where you you sit there and you go, you know what, Uh, that might really make the bank account... Go up, that might make the promotion side of me go up. That might do a lot of great things for me. And I would always go take a step towards something, and then bam, jump right back and go reality check. If what is it that you want to do in your life? And okay, no, I'm not going to cite D. Snyder and go, I want to rock. But that's totally true. I want to do what I'm doing. And if the industry, like if the press, the fans, and the labels wouldn't sign it. Uh, Save it, hey man! It's totally time to pack it in, buddy. Um, yeah,
1: but it's not time to pack would,
0: it in.
1: We're not there yet.
0: Yeah, so so all these all these, yeah, I don't even think I'm going to end up there because we just built such a following in Europe and and um, to the point and that the last riff, the last minute of our new record has a disco song on it. Listen to the very last minute of this record on the last song. It's disco. I mean. How many metalheads can go out and do whatever the hell they want and still have the backing of some fans, some press, and some record companies? I mean, it's it's a dream life. I can experiment. I can do stuff that I want to do. It doesn't mean it's good some of it's really good some is not good some is right in the middle songs albums whatever but it's just i love doing it and hit or miss it's just something i love doing right
1: right so so the end of not all there has a has a disco thing uh, for the demented you got course, it you see for the demented of course is the new album, it is available now. Uh, there we go. That was uh, that was uh, beautiful and wonderful. And uh, <laughs> we definitely need to do a, a part two, because we, we never actually got to go through the entire discography. But, uh, Jeff, a great pleasure. And uh, we shall see you yeah, in Ottawa. Sure. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. Rock Talk. When you're looking to buy a car, you want to make sure that you're getting real pricing on actual inventory. Unfortunately, a lot of the time, that isn't the case. People configure cars online only later to find out they're not available. With TrueCar, you get real pricing on actual inventory. This is not pricing offered by TrueCar, but pricing from an actual dealer. And not just any dealer, but a true car certified dealer. This is a carefully curated network of dealers committed to transparency and offering you a competitive market price. Using TrueCar, you can easily find the car you want. Next, TrueCar will show you what other people in your area paid for the same car that you are looking for. Now you know what a fair price is, so you can feel confident. Over 3 million cars have been sold to True Car users by the True Car Certified Dealer Network. There are over 13,000 True Car Certified Dealers nationwide. You will work directly with a True Car Certified Dealer contact. True Car users are more likely to enjoy a faster buying process. When they are connected with a True Car certified dealer. True Car users save an average of over $3,000 off MSRP. When you're ready to buy, visit True Car to enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states.
3: Hey, buddy! Hey, buddy! <laughs> What's going on, man? Hi, guy! Yeah, yeah. The team, Loveline, man. You guys remember us from back in the day? Well, we're doing a pod, and we're doing it every day, and we've been doing it for a while. And if you, if I hear one more time people say, "God, I loved you and Adam together on Loveline," and I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, we're doing a podcast.
1: Will you please just join us at the Adam and Dr. Drew Show, please?" All at dot right. show.com it's a great show come on now
3: only on podcast one that's us adam and dr drew show just like the old days doctor's <laughs> orders oh oh man you're funny yep all right let's go save some babies let's do it now
1: back to rock talk with mitch Lafon. And a very big thank you to Annihilators' Jeff Waters for having spent so much time with me talking about their new album, For the Demented, and all kinds of other great stuff. But uh, let us get over to the last interview of the show. It is with Seven Dust's John Connolly, talking about his other band, Projected. Their new album was and is Ignite My Insanity. Uh, I did the interview earlier in the summer, and for some reason it got lost in the shuffle of me putting together different episodes... And for that, I do offer my sincerest apologies for John. But that said, the interview is still good. It still stands up, and it is definitely worth listening to, much like Ignite My Insanity is worth checking out. It does include Scott Phillips, who drums for Alterbridge and, of course, Creed. So please, without further ado, uh, check out... Well, first, check me out on Twitter, at Mitch LaFawn, and the Facebook page, Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. But that said... Here is, from the band Projected, Igniting My Insanity, the one, the only, John Connolly. We are speaking with John Connolly of the band Projected and, of course, Seven Dust new album is Ignite My Insanity. Uh, John, great pleasure to uh, speak with you today.
3: Oh. Well, thanks for having me.
1: Uh, the first thing I'll, I'll, I'm going to say is, is real quick... Uh, you know, I grew up in the seventies and eighties and album covers and the art that went with it was always very important to me. And when I see the album cover art that you've put on this, it really just smacks you. I mean, it's, it's such a great visual. Um, is that still important in this day and age to have a great visual on, on the cover art or is that sort of a a lost art in itself?
3: You know, I mean, for me, I, I think it's, it's, uh, I don't know. I mean, it was always a big deal for me when I was a kid, you know. That being said, um, probably two of the most important albums in the rock industry, in the history of the rock industry are Back in Black and Metallica the Black album. So I guess there is something to be said about the fact that you could, you can get by without having anything. Um, but for me, it was always cool to have that visual, To you know, even if it was something that was super, super basic, like Pink Floyd the Wall, you know, not a whole lot of extra you know stuff going on on that cover but i think it just spoke like the imagery and everything that that went through it you know being that it was a concept record for me it was really important you know kiss when i was eight years old i saw the kiss logo and i hadn't even heard the band but i had to have the record just because the logo was so cool and then of course you get kiss Alive too and you look on the back and everything's blowing up and they're wearing costumes and jean's cape is on fire and you're like you know as an eight-year-old kid i was like I don't care what it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was so, you know, just, just frozen by how cool everything looked. And I was like, all right, you know, and of course, as soon as you put it on and you turn it up my life was over. I mean, I think my mother knew at that point, Uh Oh, <laughs> we have a problem here. he's finally found something that he's really going to latch on to. So yeah, I mean, you know, for me, it's always been a, uh, it's always been an important part of the presentation. You know, I, Putting songs out is great. Putting music out is great. And I know we live in a day and a, an age where people kind of want them in smaller doses. You know, people talk more about EPs and streaming and singles and stuff, but I don't know. For me, I think it's, it's a, it's a bigger picture. You know, I, I always love digging into the, the artwork of albums as a kid, you know, listening to the songs as you're looking at the pictures and the artwork and trying to think about what the artist was, you know, trying to interpret or, or get across as, as they were, you know, unveiling everything you know not just the musical side of it but the visual side as well i mean pink floyd's a great example because i've always been a band you know when you go and you see the show it's a it's a presentation even roger waters everything is all about the imagery and the uh you know the visual as much as the uh you know the actual sound of it
1: Absolutely. And, and you and I have the same sort of trajectory musically, except you have talent on an instrument and I don't, because we're, we're both born from 68. So we both went through that, the kiss, seeing, you know, Love Gun and going, oh, my God, what the, what the hell? Oh, is this? yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, let's get over to ign- Ignite My Insanity, because you, you just mentioned that a lot of bands just release EPs. Some even just stick to singles. You know, Sammy Hager of Van Halen or formerly of Van Halen has been releasing just singles for, for the longest time. You've come up with 21 songs. Um, talk to me about the risks and challenges and opportunity in releasing so many songs and, and doing a double live, or not a double live, but a double album.
3: Um, you know, for me, it, it goes back to the whole thing, you know, being a kid born in 68. I love the presentation. I, you know, even if it wasn't a double album, anything that had the double, you know, the the thing where you'd open and you'd have all this stuff on the inside. I mean. For me, it was an experience, you know, and it was something that I think the business has kind of gotten away from because, you know, it's it's the FedEx age. Everything wants, you know, Amazon delivery here today. You want whatever you've got in the mail coming tomorrow. You know, hurry up and listen to this song because there's 30,000 other bands that are getting ready to release music and it's going to be on Spotify and Tidal and Apple Music and all that good stuff. So with a side project, we said, all right, considering this is something that's sort of outside the box anyways, why don't we do something that's completely different? And when we first started working on the project, it, our it, we had every intention of releasing a record that had somewhere in the neighborhood of, you know, 10 to 12 songs. And, you know, traditionally when you go in the studio, you figure, okay, let's get 16, 17, 18, somewhere in that neck of the woods. And then you kind of trim the fat, so to speak. You know, you figure out what's going to be your b sides, what's not strong enough, you know sometimes you can have a great piece of music that just doesn't find really, really good vocals and melodies for sometimes ever. Sometimes it takes a few years, you know, for those things to grow. But we had every intention of taking those 16, 17 songs and trimming them back. And every time I tried to make a cut, someone would flip out. (laughs) They're like, Oh, you can't get rid of that one. That was too cool. Like, okay. So the next week I would try to cut something else. This one isn't really strong enough. And then someone else would kind of flip out about it and, you kind of go through that process for a while and you realize, all right, this isn't easy um, because there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of points that people are being, you know, made about which songs shouldn't be cut. And um, no matter how many times I tried to do it, it just wasn't working. So we said, all right, it's easier to push in the other direction because when you're sitting at that number, I was like, let's get up around 20, you know, 21 and, and see what happens. Let's, let's just see how naturally some things, you know, fall into place. It was kind of easy because all of the uh, all the songs had this conceptual nature. You know, they're all kind of tied together anyway. So we just kind of continued down that path. And, you know, the business part of me said, okay, we've got two records here. You've got Ignite and you've got My Insanity. And we're going to release two different records and two different windows. And Rat Pack came back and they said, look, I said, we love you enthusiasm, the idea about doing the two different records, but they were all written together. And I was like, yeah. And they were like, and they all kind of belong together. And I was like, yeah, they definitely are all super, super related, you know, connected pieces. And they said, well, let's just release a double record. Then. And, you know, I mean, the artist part of me is kind of just sitting there jumping up and down going, okay, I don't need too much convincing now because I love the idea. You know, it's something that's, that's not typically done in the business. Um we're not a band who's going to be able to release a record every year, year and a half, um, you know, between the Alta bridge schedule and the seven, us schedule and now the Tremonti schedule, we got to pick and choose our moments and our battles when we actually get a chance to do this. So we had no, you know, it, it wasn't intentional to release a record in 2012 and then release our follow up in 2017. We had no idea it was going to be a five-year window between them, but we figured what better way to reward the people that have been hanging out and paying attention since 2012. than Let's just overload them. Let's give them so much stuff that it will keep them busy for, you know, as long as it takes us to get back in the studio and do another record, which ironically enough has already started. We've already got a couple of songs for Projected 3. So, um, you know, we just had so much fun with it. It was like it it wasn't a struggle to get there. It was a struggle to try to make it smaller, if that makes any sense. So we figured, let's just make it a little bigger. Make it a little bigger. Let's do... Let's do the atypical thing, you know, let, let, let's do what what everyone is not doing.
1: Right. Now, you've also produced this album and you co-produced the first one or you were involved in the, uh, Talk to me about that challenge because I, I've always been one to say that it's nice to bring in an outside producer to have outside ears so that, you know, you could, somebody can say, well, I'm not too sure about that guitar. Or not. Um, talk to me about self-producing and the challenge for you because you are trying to, make a great record you're also trying to please the guys in the band um is it important to have an outside producer
3: i think it depends on the scenario and the situation i mean i've probably i guess i've made 13 14 records yeah i guess with the two stars i'm like the record 14 now um we've used we've used some great producers we've used some producers that you know we had a little buyers morse going into whatnot and then we self-produced you know we've done every different version of it um, perfect example, the new seven best record we've brought on Elvis basket who mixed the first projected record. That was my first working experience with him, but he's also done the last, I believe four Alter bridge records. So Scott had a really, really good relationship with Elvis. And when we went in the mix, you know, we just hit it off and he added so much stuff. I was like, okay, this is cool. Having an outside point of view, you know, at this point, because on the first record, we really didn't know what we were doing we're just kind of winging it. Um, 7 Dust death has chosen to not self-produce. We've we've self-produced six records um in our career and the last three were all basically done with Mike Ferretti um up at Architect Music. And it was kind of time for us to hit the reset button. We said, you know what, let's bring in that outside perspective, you know, because sometimes you get so honed in on what you're doing, it can be a good thing, but then sometimes you're like, all right, we need a we need someone to keep keep perspective going and, and give us some some outside, you know, an objective opinion. Um, and I think the reason that we chose to kind of keep it more in-house this time was only because bringing Elvis in at the 11th hour on the first projected record kind of opened up my mind to a whole new set of ideas and things. And when we started this, this project, I was, I was pretty sure I knew exactly where we were going to go. You know, I didn't know how many songs it was going to take to get there. But we definitely had an idea. And like I said, it wasn't a struggle. I mean, if if it had gotten to the point where we had seven songs and nothing else was coming up and we just, you know, nothing was getting finished, that would have been the point where I said, okay, we need to hire someone to come in here and, and kind of referee the, you know, (laughs) the, the sessions, tell us what's good. What's not good. What's, you know, what we're obsessing over. But this, this process was just, it was super, super easy to get there. Um. So I think once we had, you know, 18, 19 songs, we kind of looked around and the guys in the band are all thumbs up and smiles and everyone was excited and happy. And I said, okay, well, let's just keep going. You know I mean? If we need to bring someone in at the 11th hour again, we'll bring them in. But I had a, when we started the process, um, we were going to try to get Elvis to at least mix it. And he just had some just major scheduling conflicts that we had going on with the time that we had available. So, we decided that we were going to use Mike Ferretti, who has done the last three um, Seven Dush records with me. And he's also worked with Scott Phillips. At least Scott did the walking with Giants, uh, one of the sessions up there with him. So it was there was no getting to know you. You know, he'd already been through the workflow with him once and I'd already been through months of being in the studio with Mike. So we could hit the ground running. You know, we didn't overthink anything. We put the board up. You know, we wrote all the songs out, we all laughed because we were like, Okay, this is insane. We've never done anything this big. And uh we blasted through everything. I think we had all the basic tracks done in maybe ten, eleven days, and then we regrouped and, and set up here at home and uh we just picked through it until it was done. But but yeah, I, I think I think bringing a producer in definitely has has its its point for sure. Um, but it just depends on, on the project, you know. Right. Like I said, you know, me choosing not to bring one in on the second projected record, but yet we're definitely choosing to bring one in on the 11th Seven Dust record, you know, it's it's all about what you're trying to accomplish and uh I think it also has a lot to do with the writing process. You know, the Seven Dust writing process is a good bit different from um projected one. Projected's a little bit more efficient. You know, they lean more on me at the beginning and then towards the end they kind of finish things out where with Seven Dust everyone is kind of plugged in right from you know, right from the word goes. So sometimes it's cool to have that that extra, you know, set of ears and eyes kind of watching the process just to kind of keep it in the lane, so to speak.
1: Yeah, so to speak. Now, I do want to get back to the writing process, but you mentioned uh, Peace Dogs. You were, of course, the yeah. drummer in that band, <laughs> and you you were sort of at the back of the stage, and then you got to be guitarist with Seven Dust and, and moved to the front of the stage. But now with Projected, you're the front man, Talk to me about that—that—that that, that sort of transition from being the guy who's a, in the back of the stage, to now being the guy who's in front, and and all the eyes are focused to—is is that challenging for you? Is it very comfortable for you, or does it simply just scare the hell out of you? That whoa, this, everybody's looking at me now.
3: I, I think all three. I mean, right. it's it's terrifying because I'm like, all right, where's where's Leon? <laughs> you know, I'm looking at Scott, going, okay, you got Miles Kennedy in your band, who is arguably one of the best rock singers ever tremendous guitar player and songwriter too so you know i look at these guys and i'm like all right you know the bar is <laughs> the bar's pretty high um you know I, I love playing the drums i really do but i think the most frustrating thing was as a drummer it's hard to get your point across to the other guys in your band um you know you learn a bar chord and you kind of throw some songs together and all that good stuff and You just don't get taken as much as, you know, as serious as the other guys who are actually playing on the stringed instruments with, you know, whatnot. I mean, black was actually a song that was kind of around um, during the peace dog days. Um, Not that it was a peace dog song or anything, but it was definitely written at that time because that was the first thing that I ever played for Morgan after I had, you know, after I'd been booted from the band. So, um, you know, everything happens for a reason, I guess, but for me, it's just, uh, I think it's a natural progression, you know, uh, you know, as a drummer wanting to be a songwriter, you learn the guitar and then you kind of find your voice a little bit. Um, You know, 7-Dust, you never know where the vocal contributions are going to come from because everybody in the band has a voice. I mean, Vinny doesn't even sing that much, but he's probably got one of the better voices in the band. Um, So everyone can handle the vocal duties and we all enjoy writing. You know, we all have thoughts and ideas and you know, really strong, and you know, Clinton myself are you know really really big on melody, and Morgan is w- as well. I mean, he's got an incredible voice, and he's got an incredible you know writing style. Um, we all complement each other, and it works really really well. But you know, for me, it's um, it's a natural progression, but it's still weird. <laughs> you know, I watch videos, and I'm like, oh man, what am I doing out in the front? You yeah. know, I mean, years ago I was back there playing drums, having a good time, and. You know, not that I don't enjoy this, but I think it was just a natural progression for me, um, you know, because I just enjoy music. I mean, I'd be completely tempted to play drums again. You know, if I, if someone said, hey, man, I need a bass player for some sessions, I'd go grab the bass and go over there and hop in. I mean, I just love making music, you know? So for me, the more I can be a part of whatever I'm a part of, um, you know, it's it's cool. But it is terrifying. I mean... My hats off to the Maynard, the Maynards, and the LeJons and the the Mileses of the world, you know, for being so natural at being able to do it. Because for me, it was, it wasn't something that I woke up one day and said, "Okay, I'm going to be a singer now." Just go be a singer. Um, you know, it took me a long time to be able to find out what kind of a singer I was, and I think that's the, that's probably the the biggest hurdle any singer has to deal with is just learning, learning your limitations. You know. What are your strong suits? What can you do? What are you just not even going to try to do? Um, You know, I don't have the range of a guy like Miles Kennedy, so I'm not going to try. Now, E-Rock on the other hand does. So it works out really, really well in this band because we can definitely, you know, we can approach some of those, those higher, really, really cool um, harmony lines and stuff. And he doesn't struggle with them at all. And Vinny's the same way. So I've actually got the worst voice (laughs) in (laughs) projected.
1: That's funny. Um, Kill the Flaw from Seven Dust came out two years ago, 2015. You've written 21 songs, or you've put out 21 songs on Ignite. Talk to me about the songwriting in terms of how do you decide which goes in the projected pile and which goes into the Seven Dust pile? And does Lejon call you up and say, hey, dude, it's been two years, why, why not keep five or six of these for us? I mean, um, is there a difference in the approach to the songwriting for you for both bands, and... How do you decide which ones go in which pile, for which band?
3: Uh, well, sometimes it's it's sort of decided for me because um, I don't really, other than the, at the tail end of the projected record, which we knew we needed to get up to twenty one, you know, so twenty twenty one songs, we knew we were adding to something that was already there. That being said, everything that was already there, at one point, way, shape, form, or another, had been kind of presented to seven us um you know i don't write and then keep stuff hidden from either band if that makes any sense you know usually i just write a bunch of stuff and we always show up in the studio with a ton of stuff even on records like black at the sun we said okay we're not going to show up with any demos we're going to try to write organically together you know Clint and myself still had a stockpile i mean we still had eight or ten demos that we had sitting on our laptops that way we'd we've always got something to fall back on, you know, we call it the well, you know, you go to the well, if you're, if you're dry that day, okay. What do you guys got? You know, fire something up and let's, let's get some ideas for them. Um, so I think, you know, seven dust has had the opportunity to do any of these songs, but sometimes it's hard to hear the final version of a song until you get to the vocals. You know, sometimes it's very difficult for um, my wife's a great example. I play her, demo music. And she just looks at me and she shakes her head and she goes, I have no idea what this is supposed to sound like. Cause there's no words and there's no vocals and there's no melodies on it. but I can hear it. Cause I, am like, okay, I haven't done it yet, but you know, sometimes it's hard to see that final vision. Um, and you know, in even in seven us world, sometimes it's hard, you know, Clint's got an idea on a song and we're all sitting there scratching our heads going, we have no idea where this is going. And then he'll throw a vocal melody on it. And all of a sudden, it's like a big light bulb. And you go, oh, now I get it. So it kind of goes both ways, though, because there were a couple songs that, you know, I thought through the writing process, I was like, okay, this is definitely projected. So let me just throw it over here. You know, you got pile A, pile B. And then, you know, you get into Kill the Flaw and you accidentally play something in the wrong pile. And then you're like, oh, wait a minute. Let me, let me, you know, let me take that back. And then everyone gets excited about it. And then all of a sudden... You know, you realize the song you thought was going to be projected is now seven us, and vice versa. Um, you know, because for me, it's like I don't try to differentiate too much because I think there's so much differentiation between seven us and projected as it is. Um, just the difference in the vocal style of what Lejean does and what I do. Um, programming, you know, that's something that we kind of stay away from in the projected world. We don't do much of that. And it's a heavy element that's always been involved in the 7 Dust process. Multiple voices. um, You know, Morgan and Clint sing a lot of parts, you know, in the 7 Dust world, and that's something we keep a little bit more streamlined with projected. So I think the, uh, the idea behind, you know, what kind of music, you know, with 7 Dust and projected related, of course, you know, it's very difficult for me not to be honest in my songwriting, but I think in the presentation, I think, that's where the biggest difference is. But it's never easy, you know, because sometimes you, you're you playing something for guys. And like I said, you you can see that final vision and they just haven't been able to tap into it. And uh, sometimes they, they look at it after the fact and then like, damn, how did we miss that one? Or why did we not hear that? Yeah, you know, have... but we even do that in a level seven. Dust. There's songs that have been hanging around on hard drives for years. And we've had producers tell us, oh, it's not good enough. It's, you know too stock or it's too basic or whatever. and We stumble across it years later and run at the flagpole, and then it becomes the first thing on the record. And we all just sit there and shake our heads and go, all right, well, if it all happens for a reason, man.
1: Well, there's a time and a place for everything. Um And, and I'll finish with this. Uh, the first album, Human, came out in 2012. It started off as being sort of your um, solo project, and then it became a band. Now we're here, we are five years later. What do you see going forward for the band? Is it a band that's going to put out albums regularly and get on tour and be its own thing? Or is it sort of always going to be this side project where when we have some time, we'll get to it? I mean, do you want this to be a touring entity that is on festivals and doing the European festivals and really moving it forward? Or is it always going to be... The stuff I'm doing when I'm not busy with Seven Dust, if, if that makes any sense.
3: Yeah, I mean, look, I think we're all realistic in the fact that we know that uh, you know Seven Dust and Alter Bridge are the priorities, kind of no matter what. And I mean, even with Mark Tremonti, he's Mark Tremonti. You know, I mean, Tremonti is a it's a touring entity. They've they've gone overseas, they've done festivals, they've done a lot of touring and stuff. But he still has to kind of put a B up on the forefront, just because that's kind of the main gig. I would love to be able to take this out on tour, and I would love to be able to do some touring with it, but I don't think that it will ever be the type of touring schedule like we do in the world of seven us where we do a record and we go out for 18 months. Um, We kind of didn't put the pressure on ourselves in this project for that. And we didn't build it around that Um, to do. It would be great. It would be a nice bonus. And I guess because of the way that we did it, it makes it an even, you know, bigger possibility because there isn't the pressure of okay, you got to go out and you got to do X amount of shows. You know, we we have to do this, we have to do that. Um, we don't have to do anything, so it's kind of a cool spot to be in. But I mean, the only reason we actually have that ability is because of the work that Alter Bridge and Seven us to put in over the years. So, yeah, I mean, I, I still call it a side project, but I think the fact that we did a second record and we did a a pretty big second record. You know, I think that kind of underscores the fact that all of us are serious about this. You know, this is something that we realized, Hey, you know, the first one was just like, all right, let's just see what happens. Let's have some fun with it. And it got received so well that we said, all right, well, let's try it again. Let's, let's see if we can get over the sophomore jinx, you know, was it a one-time deal? Are people going to, you know, really, really buy into this? Are they digging it? And I think once you do the second one, you realize, okay, you know, based on the reaction that we have so far, we could actually have some fun with this. So, yeah, I mean, I would love to be able to take it out on tour at some point.
1: Oh, That would be great. Uh, Of course, I'll remind everybody, Ignite, My Insanity, is the album by Projected. It is available now. Make sure you pick that up. And, uh, John, absolute pleasure talking to you. Just a wonderful, wonderful
3: conversation. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, let's do another one very soon.
3: Sounds good, man. I'd love to. Cheers. Bye-bye. Okay, take care.
0: Bye-bye. Download new episodes of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn every Monday at Podcast One and on the Podcast One app. Or you can subscribe at iTunes. And don't forget to rate, review, and share.
2: President Trump denies it. I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. President Trump denies on Twitter using vulgar language when questioning why the U.S. would accept more immigrants from Haiti and African nations. 17 dead, 43 missing in Southern California after Tuesday's heavy rain and devastating mudslides. Santa Barbara County Sheriff Bill Brown is asking people to evacuate some areas so search and rescue crews can do their jobs. It
1: is seriously impacting
3: the ability of search and rescue, public works, other first responders, and repair crews to clear roadways and to engage in search and rescue, repair, and damage assessment
1: operations.
2: Missouri Governor and former Navy SEAL Eric Greitens is now under investigation after acknowledging an extramarital affair but denying anything more, including accusations that he tried to blackmail the woman into keeping quiet. I'm Rita Foley.